you, kid. I'm Charles Foster Kane! Hey, Stella! Suck on this. I traveled the banks of the river of Jordan to find where it flows to the sea. I looked in the eyes of the cold and the hungry And I saw that I was looking at me And I wanted to know if life had a purpose And what it all means in the end In the silence I listened to voices inside me And they told me again and again there is only one river, there is only one sea, and it flows through you, and it flows through me. There is only one people, we are one and the same, we are all one spirit, one name, we are the What is going on, everybody? This is Wrong Real Episode 514's podcast for hardcore cinephiles where we tackle everything from Jean-Luc Godard to Jean-Luc Picard. And today, in its first appearance since our naughty 90s nostalgia episode, which we need to do a part two for, by the way, but at any rate, we've got the great Bill Scurry back in your ear holes talking about one of the funniest movies ever made, Airplane, which just had its 40th anniversary a couple days ago. So, Mr. Scurry, welcome back to Wrong Real. Stewardess, I had the fish too. Exactly. Uh, we're gonna have to make a pronounced act of will to not make this episode be nothing but airplane <laughs> quotes, <laughs> which is always the problem with these comedies that we loved as little kids. Whether you're talking about Caddyshack or Fletch or Blues Brothers, you just end up quoting the movie whole time, which is fun if you're at a bar having a few drinks, but maybe less so if it's a, if it's a podcast. But we'll try to thread that needle and find a balance of both film history as well as comedy. But catch us up, man. What's been happening during the, the season of the virus? Season of the virus. You know, I feel a little guilty because obviously uh, listeners may know, maybe they don't know. I've been in Amsterdam since last September. So I was coming up upon a year. And I think I made a really sagacious decision to do that because I think the rest of the continental United States has sort of collapsed in upon itself. Not that Europe hasn't had its own problems, but long story short, the Netherlands and the neighboring countries did a pretty good job of corralling their shit. So our infection rate is down to almost nil, and there are almost no sick people in the hospitals. People are doing tentative things about getting back together in communal spaces and having parties and things like that. I personally am not going back to the movies yet. I'm not going to the restaurants, but those uh, options are out there for me. So what I've been doing is riding around bicycles a lot like people in Amsterdam do. And I have been watching a shit ton of movies because I've been at home. And I've been doing that with uh, Mr. Matthias Zecharias van der Roost, uh, a regular on the show. And we've had a great thing going because I think we're 34 films deep into our communal viewing situation. And he has this excellent taste. I feel like he makes me feel like a total pinhead. And so he's been whipping a lot of Bunuel on me. And, you know, some of the stuff that's been lacks in my uh, f my 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 viewing diet 
And so he's making a better man of me. And hopefully I'm showing him more <laughs> like shitty 1980 New York movies like Maniac with Joe Spinell. And, you know, somewhere in the middle, it all works out. But, yeah, we're having a lot of fun. I, I hate to say it. Like I said, I'm feeling guilty because I'm doing some of the best viewing I've ever done in my life. It's been gravy for, you know, movie fans because this has been an excellent opportunity to catch up on all the stuff that's streaming uh, digitally out there. And what is going on in the world of your podcast? Podcast is rolling along. We kind of changed our focus a little bit because, you know, our I show I Don't Get It is about pop culture trends through the eyes of two 45-year-old dudes. And since pop culture, like they kind of tap the brakes on it, we've had to look around and see, well, what actually is happening in the world, abbreviated though it may be, abrogated. So we've done shows about Zoom because everyone's into Zoom. We've done shows about sourdough bread. Whatever people are filling their time with in this dreadful hour, we decided to take a look at it. I mean, we've done some bigger picture topics too. But I mean, um, you know, while we're all sitting at home kind of doing small scale things in our kitchen, I mean, and people are starting to come out now as the thaw uh, comes upon the environment, we've tried to focus on exactly, you know, what people are doing in, 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 in the virus. So, I mean, we've had fun doing it. We've, we've not skipped a week in a long time, that's for damn sure, because there's been plenty to talk about, even in the small uh, demimonde of the, the, the post-virus world. But I'm also working on American Caesar Salad Season 2. Uh, I had a lot of fun with the first 10 episodes of my video series, which is on YouTube. They're, um, I would say, between 10 and 15 minute long essays on topics in video culture. And so I'm the I'm in the third episode of the next 10. I'm working on Brad Dourif right now, which I've been on for a while, but I have it pretty much edited. And it's sort of a different concept for me. Um, in the, the 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 very last one of season one was Kenneth uh, Ken McMillan, one of my favorite actors based on Dune, one of my favorite movies, and I thought I want to keep that kind of uh, spirit rolling. So I talked about Brad Dourif because I really loved him as Peter DeVries in Dune, and I mean I've been a big Brad Dourif fan. He's just one of these character actors that's gotten near, not nearly enough credit for what he's done, and so hopefully the kind of thing that I did for Ken McMillan, which is to shine a light on this character guy that a lot of people just assumed was wallpaper. I could do the same thing for Brad Dourif, um, you know, who's just still around, here to enjoy the praise. Hopefully it means something to him while the guy's alive and, you know, we can still watch his movies, which we can't. We, we can watch his movies, but we can't do that with McMillan. So I've had a lot was of it, fun. Was uh, it Kevin Marr who got the pick with Brad Dourif in public one time? I can't remember. Somebody got a, a great pick with the Brad. Or was it, yeah. or was it Marcus? No, it was Kevin uh, with Grand Army Plaza. Marcus may have had one too, but Kevin got one with his kids in Brooklyn. And actually, it's funny. I mean, this we're doing this show on July 4th weekend, but um, Andrew Hawkins got Brad Dourif to do a live stream as part of the, uh, what is it, In Search of Tomorrow benefits package, that whole Kickstarter thing. On July 12th, they're doing a live stream of Dune on Sunday night, and Brad Dourif is going to be part of it, too. And so I'm actually hoping to piggyback on the Twitch feed and ask Brad Dourif questions live during the Q&A, which was, it's like a freaking coincidental miracle that this is right in front of me yeah i'm going to be doing a uh, demons live stream with andrew hawkins on july 19th where they've got garetta garetta from demons that are going to be participating and i already did my homework on demons last year when i did a podcast about it so i'm ready to go and so uh yeah i love the the community that hot the hawk hawk the slayer has been building hawk the slayer. <laughs> 
<laughs> ever since they uh, they launched that project. Yeah. In any case, well, let's start switching gears into the topic at hand today because one of the recurring themes on Wrong Reel that I'm always bemoaning is how comedy and movies is in rough shape. And that could also always, I mean, people are always going to remember the things from when they were young and in a nostalgic light. But I do think something was just in the water in the late 70s and really in early 80s whether that was the influence of National Lampoon or SNL, whatever the case might be, or you know, it just there was a lot of there's a lot of cool stuff going on in the comedy world, and into this genre steps these three guys, <laughs> Jim Abrahams, David Zucker, and Jerry Zucker, who were destined to change the comedy genre forever, or at least for a brief shining moment. They were kind of the kings alongside John Landis and a few other people. But for people out there who don't know about this comedy trio, set the stage for us. How did these three maniacs uh, take Hollywood by storm? Well, from my research, they had a, a, a sort of you know grimy theater in Los Angeles called the Kentucky Fried Theater, and they were th- they call themselves three Jews from um, Wisconsin. You know, I, I confuse it with the, the two Jews from Minnesota who were the Cohen brothers and all the various Jews from other parts of the, of the Midwest. But, yeah, these guys came to Los Angeles. They wanted to do comedy. And it was exactly the era of Lampoon, the era of all this sort of um, slobs versus snobs comedy. It gave the underdog a real easy riders raging bulls way of expressing themselves. Uh, not that there hadn't been things like all that Second City stuff out of Chicago. You know, you had Alan Arkin and and was it Severin Darden had been doing underground theater work for a long time in the Midwest. But the idea of these people coming to Los Angeles and trying to inject comedy with the same sort of down and dirty, do-it-yourself, Samistat, recorded over and over and over kind of uh, sensibility, these guys were part of it. So they said they wanted to sell a movie and they took the ethos of their Kentucky Fried Theater and pitched it and somehow got, in 77, they got Landis on board. Landis had done Animal House and was 76. Is that what year he did Animal House? I always thought that uh, Kentucky Fried Movie came before Animal House. But oh, okay. All right. I'm, I'm, then I'm fucking talking about my ass. Done, You're right. I think Schlock was I Schlock. Think, his first big, uh, he was like, like 21 years old when he made it. But Landis was just one of those maniacs who was ready to go to work from like age 18 onward. I know he worked on... Not Kelly's Mar- Heroes. Yeah, Kelly's Heroes. I must say Merrill's Marauders, a, a very different kind of Men on the Mission <laughs> movie. But yeah, so Schlock was 73, Kentucky Fried Movie was 77, and that which opened the door to Animal House. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, right, okay. So yeah, I'm fucking totally wrong about that. But, but yeah, like Landis was, you know, this weird guy who had... I mean, considering what Landis spent the '80s directing, I guess we have to consider him a comedy director, even though he did so much, so much other work in in, in other genres. Well, he's but... the director of comedy in the '80s, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Whether you're talking about Three Amigos or Spies Like Us or fucking Trading Places, Blues Brothers, it's almost embarrassing how many beloved comedies he made in, in that period. People always talk about American Werewolf in London, but the reason that movie is yeah. so great. It's because, because it's funny, funny as shit. shit. Like the, the practical yeah. effects are amazing. The horror works. But it's also just a divine comedy. So, yeah, it's hard to think of a better comedy director during that decade. I mean, coming to America, no. like in 1988. I mean, he just, he just kept going and going and going. Yeah, and Into the Night, I mean, which which I know is as a comedy, but it also is like an L.A. Um, yeah, Into the Night. That's, I, I confuse it with the Demi movie, um, which is, came around the same time, too. But... Um, yeah, so so Landis Landis got on board, and he obviously had a sensibility to do an anthology movie. So 
Kentucky Fried Movie was not the first, but the sort of first of a block of movies that had that style of watching TV. Yeah, like GrooveTube or Amazon Women on the Moon or a go. bunch of these anthology comedies that, yeah, you feel like you're watching TV, not, not a flick. And I love Amazon Women on the Moon I grew up with. That's one of my favorite films, and uh, I made a million gifs out of it. There's some real sublime scenes. And that, that was a gang effort. That was like Joe Dante, Peter Horton. A, a bunch of people came on and did that one. That was like, like Creepshow. It was a few different directors, mostly... Um, uh, m- mostly uh, uh, George Romero, but but this was uh, taking that idea that you're switching channels in the middle, or I guess more specifically, you're sitting in a theater watching the coming attractions wash over you, and then there's some features and there's some teasers, and so it's like this weird experience, uh, multi-part going to the theater. Catholic high school girls uh, in trouble. It's one of the best trailers ever made. It is, and it it, it it is so indistinguishable from a lot of other Roger Corman product. That's what's so amazing. It's right down the center. And Courtroom was so fucking funny in that movie. And the 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 Enter the Dragon knockoff was like so well done. It's like that was directed with such a shorthand. It was cast so well. It was almost it like it could the, have been a feature the, film. They could have easily fleshed it. If they'd added like thirty yes. more minutes to it, it would have been a feature film just in, in its own right. And it would have been yeah. It's, it is funny as fucking shit when you have like the little guy in the corner recording sound, like when he's like pointing out all the surveillance devices and things like that, or like, oh, oh my god, <laughs> it's a toy robot! Yeah, just so many great moments. And that the dude in that, I had to look him up. The dude who played the Bruce Lee, who had sort of a, a Peter Cook lisp to him, which is another strange character choice. His name was Evan Kim, and I'm like, where have I seen this guy? And it's like, oh shit, this guy was in V. I talked about V like a year and a half ago with Sky Wingfield and, and Arminio, and I'm like, oh shit, this guy like could have had a huge upside in comedy. But either way, he was he was this great Bruce Lee character. He was he he made a caricature of Bruce Lee, but did his own thing with it. So yeah, Kentucky Fried Movie is. Not altogether great, but it has some real moments of brilliance. Yeah, it's peaks in it. and but valleys, it, but the peaks are sublime. And I, yeah, I mean, Kentucky, I mean, the Catholic high school girls in trouble. It helps that you've got some of those beautiful women ever created on this planet taking all their clothes off. But it is of a great, funny send up. Something when they mention an actress in one of her most famous roles, and they show her just rolling <laughs> along the ground. That is the <laughs> brand of humor that makes Airplane so special, where it's completely silly. But also really irreverent and kind of pornographic in a lot of ways. It's a weird mix of like incredibly childish and incredibly profane all at once. And that's a very rare combination. Usually silliness is like Billy Madison where you're silly all the way through. But you very rarely have like a, like a mature sex comedy mixed with like this three-year-old juvenile sense of humor. And I think that's what makes their brand so special and so utterly unique. Yeah, well, also tonal reverence, which they established with Kentucky Fried Movie. And whereas Kentucky Fried Movie goes like a sine curve in and out, I'm, yeah, so to speak, in and out, in and out of reverence. In and out, in out, as uh, yeah. Alex likes to say. <laughs> but it goes from serious to screwball. Like there's the, there's the um, what is it, feel, feel around uh, sequence, which is just purely a stunt based on, oh, what would it be like if somebody manhandled you at a movie theater? I guess it was a, a takeoff on sense around, that kind of thing. But all these things set the stage for them. 
to capture this moment in 80 or 79, I guess, when they shot it, that they were really slavish to getting the tone correct, where what, what Kentucky Fried Movie was the rehearsal, was the primer, and that was Zucker, Abraham Zucker, working with another director. Now, arguably a director who probably was the best at what he did and would only get better yeah. with projects he made thereafter. But they said that and it i don't know the balls on these guys these three jews from from wisconsin going in there and saying no we want to direct our own thing first of all three three guys don't direct a movie yeah and go into war with the director's guild over like well we don't do three director credits yeah. like and i think one of them even like had to like change his name or something like that but they would not <laughs> accept the idea that um you, they couldn't all be credited equally and I, i'm not aware of any directing trio any in any other case in movie history no, I don't think it's happening. I mean, you're lucky that you have a duo that the, the Coens and, and guys like that, the Polish brothers, there's a few directing trees, but usually they're family members. Or I guess you could say or the like teams. Sassy brothers and things like that, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, most of them are brothers, and then some of them wind up being like, um, who was who the, the, the hydro, those those guys who did like the Ghost Rider movies, those those effects guys. Um, you know, they're just a, they're like a brain trusted dudes. Um, I think they also made alien, the alien versus predator requiem, I think was two dudes, that kind of thing. FX. I forget what the fuck they're called. Oh, the bad boys movie that just came out, the piece of shit bad boy movie, bad boys for life had two Belgian dudes who were friends. They, yeah, they came out of the Belgian system. So, I mean, it's still a novelty. And I think the the problem is, and you know, this is just an aside, Technically, it's difficult for more than one person to direct a movie because that means there's more than one mouth that the instructions are coming from. It's confusing for actors. Like I know on the Coen Brothers set, they say the weird thing is that the Coen Brothers are in such sync where if they got two actors in a scene, Joel and Ethan will walk up and talk to the actors in between takes. And then after the next take, they'll probably reverse it and talk to the other actor. But they're such on the same wavelength, you're never getting contradictory information. Whereas if you're talking about, say, Terry Jones and Terry Gilliam making yes. uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, you got two wildly different guys with two very different skill sets. And the actors are like, what the fuck is going on? Like One director's really good with like the actors, and one's making all these beautiful shots, but they don't even seem to... like enjoy working together that much. so there's a lot of stepping on each other's toes yeah well that's because you don't divide like yeah exactly in the case of python they didn't divide the labor properly now that movie like you covered in that excellent 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 podcast that that movie is a success in spite of the friction and it was because one handled the actors and one handled the visuals they made a great movie based on gestalt so this is a completely different story these three guys were these dweeby dudes who you know, felt like they had no stake in it at all. They had to argue with Michael Eisner, who was in charge of Paramount. They said Eisner was a prince to them. You know, they, they you know, fought for the credit. They fought for all these things. They went into the studio wrongheadedly saying they wanted to make this a black and white movie with a fucking turboprop airplane because that's what they based it on. They based it on a movie from 57 called... <laughs> What was it called, James? Zero it was called, Hour. Like, zero yeah, hour. Zero Hour. All right, And if you whatever. watch the trailer for Zero Hour, it's like, all right, y'all basically just remade Zero Hour, but with jokes. <laughs> Put yourself in this man's place. Aboard a transcontinental plane, suddenly half the passengers, including your own son, are struck by a paralyzing, deadly illness. And then in the midst of the panic and confusion, the stewardess tells you to come forward to the pilot's compartment. This is what you find. A pilotless plane running wild in a stormy sky. 
Can you fly this airplane and land it? No, not a chance. You're the only chance we've got. How could he fly a plane again after the horrible experience that had sapped his courage and ruined his life? But only he, among all the passengers, had any chance at all to save them, even though it was one in a thousand. This is Cross Canada Charter, flight, flight 714, in distress. Come in, anyone. I want you to get on a horn and talk this guy down. You'll have to talk him onto the approach. And so help me, you'll have to talk him right down to the ground. Captain, he's below 700 now and he's still going down. Stryker, you can't come straight in. You've got enough fuel left for two hours flying. You've got to stay up there till we get a break in the weather. Listen, Trelevin, I'm coming in. Do you hear me? I'm coming in right now. In front of him, the bewildering array of instruments that blur before his frantic eyes. Beside him, the woman who had once loved him. And behind him, a plane load of frantic passengers. Ted, we're falling, Ted, we're falling! But it, they were they had this like I know that they were thinking we got to get this fucking thing right. And they were also making it up as they went along because they were first time directors and they were new to Hollywood. Also, Hollywood, I'm sure back in 78, 79, they were giving the keys to the kingdom to weird guys just in the spirit of the era. They were just and saying, the OK, stakes were low. This is a three point five million dollar budget, which is obviously more in the late 70s. But still, we're not talking about a princely sum of cash. No, and, and, and for what it's worth, the records you know, show that it made back its budget in half of the first week. You know, yeah. $3.5 million, it was like a 30-day shoot, and it cleaned up the first week, wiped out all the, the debt, and it just was gravy after that. So, I mean, but there's no way that Michael Eisner knows that. And, you know, Eisner was in charge of Paramount, and Eisner jumped over to Disney. After, or maybe he went to Uni. I think Eisner went from Paramount to Uni, then to Disney. But he was apparently a very savvy guy, and, and they have nothing but nice things to say about Eisner, which is fun. funny because a lot of people don't. But they said that I- <laughs> The only person I've ever met that really loves Eisner is Becky Deanna, because when she was, I think, an undergrad at USC, he came and spoke to them, and it's what really set her off. Uh, actually, I shouldn't put words in her mouth, but it's part of the reason why she got interested in marketing at a young age was being exposed to this incredible speech by Michael Eisner. So she's always been a, a very vocal defender of him. Uh, but in the industry- like any powerful person, you make enemies. And so there are plenty of yeah. people out there who like to tear him down as well. And you just assume that back in 78, 79, he was a different guy. He was a younger, you know, junior exec. Uh, he still managed to put this thing together. Again, to say that he was a great protector and a great steward of these three guys, making sure that they were in the best environment to write a script, to create this thing during the casting process, that... I feel like that is definitely is not the environment that you get today. You you can't shepherd in new talent almost as a rule in such a gentle environment. But apparently Eisner was able to read tea leaves and 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 you know cultivate these three guys to create. And I mean I will say this: this is my favorite comedy of all time. It has been for years. Watching it again in the last few days, it does not lose. In fact, it. I, not only does it not lose steam, I feel like I appreciate it more. I've been watching it for 40 years and I'm still noticing new shit. Yes, like, I mean, just, perfect. And I still laugh hard while watching it. It's not like, oh, I remember how I used to chuckle at that when I was five. I'm cracking up like a fucking crazy person. And even just dumb little things like... 
the translations on the little like overhead little being like put on a seatbelt. So I'm like, go back and Sedona. Yeah, I mean that kind of stuff. <laughs> it's so small and so stupid, but I'm cracking up like it's the funniest fucking shit ever written. And the fact that I'm still discovering more details to enjoy as I go. I can't think of a better. Co- I don't. I mean, if I was if someone's going to say what's the best comedy ever written, I would of course have to put on my snobby film historian hat. And be like, oh, well, it must be like the Marx Brothers and Duck Soup, or it must be some like it hot. But when it comes to pound for pound laughs per minute, yeah. I can't think of a more a movie that's got more laughs per minute than any other movie in, in history, other than Airplane. Flight two zero nine, you are cleared for takeoff. Roger. Huh? L A departure frequency one two three point nine. Roger. Huh? Request vector. Over. What? Flight 209 are clear for vector 324. We have clearance, Clarence. Roger, Roger. What's our vector, Victor? Now our radio clearance. Over. That's Clarence. Over. Over. Roger. Huh? Roger, over. What? Who? And I think I've seen it more than any other comedy in history. So if I'm being totally honest, Airplane is the greatest comedy because when I laugh so much at hot, I'm not screaming like a hyena throughout the entire process. But in this, just like even just dumb things like when the music comes on and the flashback and you're hearing that sped up version of the of the, the Bee Gees and that, look, <laughs> that, that, that kind of roughneck puts his arms over his head and starts kind of gyrating and walking across the room. All these little transitions make me scream like it's the funniest shit I've ever fucking seen. Yeah, I yeah I agree with you. I watch some like it's hot, and I will marvel over everything Billy Wilder does uh, on a craft level. It, it like that is ostensibly a better movie. Billy Wilder, every single thing Billy Wilder made has more oomph and more craft and more technique. But that doesn't mean it's funnier on whatever level. It doesn't make it any worse, nor does it make Airplane better. It just makes Airplane funnier, period. That's yeah. it. End of story. And I agree. I, I t- for me, the, 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 the sort of beats per minute ratio, the fact that they're sitting there paradiddling on your head with drumsticks the entire fucking time. I think they hit gold again with uh, Naked Gun, personally. Oh, God, and, yeah. I, mean, I saw it in the theater, and I'll never forget sitting beside my older brother and just looking over at him during just the credit and tears were running down his cheeks. I think I was maybe in fourth or fifth grade when that came out, but I saw it a hundred billion times on, on TV as well. I wouldn't say it's as good as Airplane, but goddamn, it's like, nice beaver. Oh, thanks, I just got it stuffed. Like, there are there are moments in that movie that I still quote all the time with my siblings, and we just laugh uproariously. But what I love about Airplane, what it, what it do, this is what something else that Duck, Duck Soup does, that and it's a trap that has to be avoided in comedy that so many comedies fall into this trap where two thirds of the way through the movie you have the obligatory sentimental bullshit where the movie starts actually taking its premise seriously whether you're talking about Wedding Crashers or Billy Madison or whatever the case might be I just want to shake these writers and say no you're making a fucking comedy you can make up any rules you want you can follow whatever premise you like from, from start to finish Airplane Every once in a while, will pretend as if it's about to have a serious moment and then completely subverts it and turns it on his head. But there's not a single earnest moment in the entire movie because, yes, they're making a goddamn comedy. But they use the language of earnestness. They use the language of, of dry filmmaking oh, and, and dry performances as well. Like, who's more earnest than Robert Stack? Who's more earnest than Lloyd Bridges? These are the most earnest <laughs> actors in history, which makes it even funnier. And that's the weird strange lightning bolt genius that's crackling throughout all this is they realize that if you play the whole movie straight people will shit their pants boss number four what happened ted what went wrong the oil pressure i forgot to check the oil pressure when kramer hears about this the shit's gonna hit the fan 
Watch that oil temperature. What the hell's he doing up there? Stryker, that plane can't land itself. It takes a pilot who can handle pressure. He's off, Rex. He hasn't flown for years. It's not his fault. It could happen to any pilot. It happened to Barbara Stanwyck. Can't push him too hard. He might break. I don't remember who you're dealing with. Nick, Pete, Jared, there's a fire in the barn. He's right. I can't take the pressure. I was crazy to think I could land this plane. I told you no. I don't care. I don't have what it takes. I'd be better off with someone who'd never flown before. Bad news. The fog is getting thicker. And Leon's getting larger. And, like, we give Walken a lot of credit for doing what he did, where he took his strange, jagged, humorless um, mid to late 80s delivery and and uh, put it in these comedy movies in the 90s where he would do the exact same thing that he did in, like, uh, the Prophecy or was he in The Prophecy? I, I don't know. But, but it's like he shows up in movies and winds up doing the same thing and becomes a comedy icon without even changing his tack just a little bit, which is the same thing Nielsen did in 1980. Leslie Nielsen had made all these bone dry movies. He was in Forbidden uh, Forbidden Planet, right? Yep. That was the one. Yeah. And he was the captain. He was this the wheel man in the Poseidon Adventure. And that those were the things that marked Leslie Nielsen's career since the dawn of time and he was looking for a way he was cheeky enough to knew to know that he he had an exit strategy figuring that he he knew of he knew how to be funny he knew he was a funny guy but no one would give him a chance to do that and but contrast him with a guy like peter graves peter graves was always bone dry on mission impossible all these movies these guys had this dryness to it peter graves could not see his way out of it he needed to be directed into being funny same thing with bridges the same thing with Bob Stack, but Leslie Nielsen knew, oh, I, I know how to take this and subvert it. And he was the one guy that was ahead of the curve in all those. But that's it. It was that treating something as completely dry. Imagine if Judd Apatow today, the very same third act issue you're talking about, where he fucks up his own movies by taking it seriously, undercutting the premise, making it mawkish and sentimental, clicking off that, that third box in the four quadrant uh, fucking checklist of things, and that always kills his movies. You know, from like forty-year-old version of running times. It's like, guess what? Airplane is eighty-seven minutes, and no one's gonna complain about being too short because they'll just watch it again. Whereas Judd Apatow's like, oh, well, my movie's uh, you know two hours and twenty-five minutes, but I earn every minute. Like bullshit. He does not earn those running times at all. <laughs> all of his movies could be cut by forty-five minutes, and nobody would complain about it. I'm guessing you did not cover in any way, shape, or form The King of Staten Island. I did a YouTube it, review, uh, and I think— Oh, shit, Pete, that's right. You did, Yeah, Pete right. Davidson, I think, has all the potential in the world. And I love seeing Bill Burr, and I love seeing Steve Buscemi. I love seeing Marissa Tomei. I love everybody involved. My, com- my complaints and grievances about the movie is that— in the same way you're talking about how Eisner, as a producer, helped these three writers and like, kind of cultivated their talent and sent them in the right direction. Like, no, it's not going to be black and white. It's going to be color. It's not going to be a small little plane. It's going to be a big old jetliner, so on and so forth. You needed Judd Apatow to be the savvy industry vet to help Pete Davidson <clears throat> avoid all the problems of first-time writers. And he should have helped tighten it up and really make it, made it pure. 
I, I think Pete Davidson's got all the talent in the world, and apparently he's got a huge dick as well. <clears throat> I, I know that from listening to all my <laughs> MMA podcasts. They're always talking about how Pete Davidson apparently has a, a hog down to his knees. In any event, I'm rooting for Pete Davidson. Good at the pal. <laughs> he, he annoys me. It, the older he gets, the more his projects annoy me. Yeah, I like. I mean, Judd Apatow came up in Larry Sanders. He was in a lot of good writers' rooms. I don't know where he learned all these bad lessons. They're self-indulgent. But ZAZ don't have that problem. I would argue that um, Airplane. I don't think has any fat on it. Airplane is almost to the frame, to the actual fucking frame, nearly as lean. And there were even jokes. There are two visual jokes in Airplane on this most recent rewatch that I kind of didn't get. One of them was. No, actually, I, the, the watermelon hits the ground, but there's this fucking spear yeah, yeah, yeah. in the back of the scene. It is just Brrr. like, it's perfect, punct- <laughs> <laughs> it's perfect punctuation. Well, but I don't understand. Like- Robert Stack, they're being so serious. And Robert Stack doing the thing where like, he takes his shades off and there's like another pair of shades and he takes those off. But they're, once again, the, those guys, they're so intense. This could be a movie like... You know, failsafe, the Sidney Lumet movie, which is like the the version of Doctor Strangelove without the jokes. It's that yeah. hardcore, and so you need the spear and the watermelon just to remind people, oh yeah, you're watching something that's totally ridiculous. But when you're talking about like the structure and how there's no fat on the bone, the interview you sent me, they talk about how they learned everything there was to know about story structure from Zero Hour, which is nothing more than just your, your quintessential late fifties, low budget, B grade genre film but sometimes those genre trappings do give you the nice discipline and structure you're looking for and so they knew nothing about writing movies they knew about sketches they knew about silliness they didn't really understand movie structure and sometimes just looking at a a lean and mean like 75 minute feature film is a great way to just tighten up and give you all the structure that you need and they still say that to this day it's the best story structure of any screenplay that they've worked on you could say that the shit that they came up with beyond this the stuff that they gonna hit the fan (laughs) (laughs) but like the scary movie type stuff was that was them i'm I'm jumping ahead but it mimics the lazier um trends that came up in the 90s and the early 2000s and stuff like that and like once they started making fun of scream it was so topical it was so of the moment it was so dated that they did follow those movies almost punch for punch and suffered for it because you couldn't hang a lot of comedy on it the fact that they were young and unimpressionable i mean this this was their first first directorial effort second script but it's like this was i think that's the best effort they ever came up with because it was a mixture between being savvy as natural born creative professionals but also not wise in the ways of the business and not cynical in trying in terms of trying to like hook onto a trend and uh you know eat something that you know cannibalize something that already existed and so yeah they followed something that was economical and they just had this anarchic, that's, you know, you mentioned the Marx Brothers, you mentioned Duck Soup. I kept thinking, this is the same sort of style as Duck Soup. Duck Soup, though, always had this winking at the audience. And the difference between this and Duck Soup is that these guys never winked at the audience. I think at one point, Robert Hayes turns to the camera and says something about uh, 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 Julie Haggerty's character. Yeah, and Johnny looks at the about- camera a few times, like when he unplugs the, th- the like the landing strip and plugs it back in, he's like, <laughs> he looks at the screen. And that's, but that's it. That's that's it. That's like as campy and as weirdly John Watersy as you get. Like the idea that you're acknowledging the fact that they're in a movie. And Steven Stucker was such a great presence. He could do that and it and it lived in his world. It didn't infect Lloyd Bridges, even though Lloyd Bridges, of course, does look at the camera when he's sniffing glue. 
But again, you could exempt those things because it still fits into the tone. At that point, you've created a pocket universe where Lloyd Bridges can pop out of the ceiling upside down. But this movie does a thing where there's almost like pocket universes within scenes where we as the audience are watching two different scenes unfold on top of each other. Like when the kid first goes into the cockpit, is like, I've never been up in a plane before. And he's like, oh, have you ever seen a grown man naked? And the scene just keeps playing. And nobody hears him, and it's so goddamn funny. <laughs> and the scene just keeps going and going and going. Ever been in a cockpit before? No, sir, I've never been up in a plane before. Have you ever seen a grown man naked? Do you want me to check the weather, Clarence? No, why don't you take care of it? Joey, do you ever hang around the gymnasium? We better get back now, Joey. No, Joey can stay here for a while if you'd like. Could I? Okay, if you don't get in the way. I'd like 209er to Denver Radio. Climbing to cruise at 42,000. We'll report again over Lincoln. Over and out. Wait a minute. I know you. You're Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. You play basketball for the Los Angeles Lakers. I'm sorry, son, but you must have me confused with someone else. My name is Roger Murdoch. I'm the co-pilot. You are Kareem. I've seen you play. My dad's got season tickets. I think you should go back to your seat now, Joey. Right, Clarence? Oh, he's not bothering anyone. Let him stay here. All right, but just remember, my name is Roger Murdoch. I'm an airline pilot. I think you're the greatest, but my dad says you don't work hard enough on defense. And he says that lots of times you don't even run down court. And that you don't really try, except during the playoffs. The hell I don't. Listen to you. I've been hearing that crap ever since I was at UCLA. I'm out there busting my buns every night. Tell your old man to drag Walton in the near up and down the court for 48 minutes. Joey, do you like movies about gladiators? He just keeps asking all these questions, but then he'll interact with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who interact with other people in the scene. So we're, we, the audience, are hearing all these dramatic asides, but no one else is. And so it's hard. That's always the risk of discussing comedies. You can break a joke by trying to discuss it too much. It works because it works. But I think the fact that we are watching two, two different scenes unfold on top of each other is what makes Peter Graves' moments in those scenes like just so unforgettable and I think those apparently he, the original line was after you've ever been in a cockpit before he's gonna say have you ever seen a grown man's cock but even the writers of this movie were like you know what maybe we ought to tap the, bra <laughs> tap the brakes <laughs> and that the fact that Peter Graves says have you ever seen a grown man naked because it is kind of innocent and squeaky clean the way he says it all the subtext is there which I think makes the joke actually better. Enough can't be said about Peter Graves and that perfect tone that he established because Peter Graves, he never breaks character. He never winks at the audience. He's in Zero Hour. He's in a serious movie from start to finish. Yeah, he had, I mean, and the nice thing is is that they drag him out through the aisle midway through the film. After he, he doesn't have to do too much and he keeps his shit straight. He delivers the exact bone-dry performance you want. And then the movie like gets rid of all three of those guys. Kareem is gone. And uh, Ashmore, I think his name is Frank Ashmore, who played who played Victor. He's also gone. And, you know, like it's 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 anarchic in its own way in that you sweep out the flight crew and you bring in Leslie the essential and Robert Stack. Yeah, Leslie Nielsen and Robert yes. Stack, they're late additions to the plot. Yeah. And yeah. And so is uh, uh, Bridges, too. Yeah. Bridges comes in. This is what's hilarious. Speaking of Bridges coming in, I read that I was reading about Graves. Like, I think the actual quote 
Graves said was that uh, this is the most disgusting piece of garbage I've ever read. <laughs> they had such trouble getting these guys on board that like they said Peter Graves would be great. Peter Graves was, you know, what was he? Jim Phelps in Mission Impossible? I, yeah, I think I think I'm thinking correctly. Hang on, let me, I'm, and, op- and I'm opening a link to his profile right now. Mission Impossible James Phelps, Jim Phelps, 67 yeah, to Jim 73. Phelps. He was they, they, these guys came out of the golden age of TV. They were as as gritty as sandpaper and as dry as uh, the shitty cheesecake. Oh, wait a minute, that, uh, he's these... a knight of the hunter. He's Ben Harper. He's the fucking father. I had no idea that was the same actor. Anyway, that's unrelated to airplane. No, uh, yeah, <laughs> but but like these guys came in. Same thing with Bob Stack. Bob Stack was. They had their eyes set on a guy like that, thinking this is what's going to add credibility to our shoot. The question is, it's like, can you get him to agree? And will he not change the thing that he does? Yeah. Like, don't get so ironic. Don't get so cheeky. Come in and deliver it. Every single thing Bob Stack does is fucking bone dry. That's what's Including amazing about stunts. it. Including his stunts. He's walking into the airport and... I mean, people from like Scientologists to uh, Hare Krishna, the, the, to, everybody's coming up and you know offering them flowers. Moonies, from, yeah, right. Yeah, what, what is it? The uh, the Church of Religious Consciousness and all all this crap. And he first he's just pushing them, then he's punching them. And there's at one point he grabs the guy by his arm and does a flip up and over him. It's like a professional wrestling <laughs> move. He's like 62 years old at this point, doing his own stunts in that seat. It's inc- but even then, it's completely earnest. It's sincere. He's in the moment. He's doing it bone dry. And that's what makes that scene along the same wavelengths early on in the movie. The Church of Religious Consciousness walks up to Julie Hager and he says, would you, like to make a do- um, would you like to make a donation? She says, no, but thank you anyway, and just keeps going. <laughs> she, I mean, we haven't even mentioned her yet. When you want to talk about great comedic performances by the, by the ladies, this is in the Hall of Fame She's so goddamn good from start. She's so sexy in such an unconventional way. And she's one of the few characters that's with us from start to finish throughout the entire movie. She's one of the heavyweight champions that helps bring this entire movie together. And when you talk about untraditional or not traditional sexiness, I think one of the sexiest moments I've ever seen in any movie ever of any genre is after she's reinflated the uh, the autopilot and she's sitting there in the in the in the in the cockpit smoking a cigarette and looking over at him with this postcoital like thunderously orgasmic like post orgasmic bliss like oh my god like this movie just turned into like the best '70s softcore erotica film I've ever seen but once again she's playing it straight she's in the moment yeah this is again this is the this is why you get actors to act because actors know how to act. The funny thing that that's a, a great transition between Bob Stack and Julie Haggerty. Julie Haggerty was is it, is fully. Haggerty, Haggerty is that the correct pronunciation? I, I've never. Oh, actually I don't know. I call. I call her. I call well, I'll her go with Haggerty because I, I, I really don't know. Yeah. yeah. Either way, but it's like she was a, an off-Broadway creature. She was more or less an unknown. And it's interesting to see that they tested uh, Sigourney Weaver. They wanted Sigourney Weaver to play the Elaine role, and she came in wearing like a '40s stewardess uniform. To think about like all the different people that kind of subbed in and they thought, oh, maybe we'll try this. Maybe Chevy Chase, Bill Murray, even Letterman. They said they had Letterman read for Robert Hayes' part, but but that's that's you know a separate thing. Yeah, Julie Haggerty is so great. And her form of acting, you know, now that we've had a whole lifetime to digest Julie Haggerty's work, she's doing more of the same thing she did like Lost in America. Like she is ahead in the 80s idiom of comedy, sitting alongside Albert Brooks. But she started here in 80s. She's doing the same thing. So the juxtaposition of Lloyd Bridges and Robert Stack and and Peter Graves next to Julie Haggerty, it's perfectly of a kind. Nothing sticks out 
you know, from one thing or another. I mean, and and you can say her performance alongside Lorna Patterson as Randy, the stewardess, and she also issues incredible, a completely. Yeah, I mean, my incredible. favorite comedy moment in history would be hard to pin down, but a strong contender is when she walks up to that little fucking girl in the bed and offers to play her a song, and as she starts strumming those chords on the guitar. And at first, people are kind of smiling and leaning in, and then more and more people start leaning in. And suddenly, you get this bizarre shot with like almost like horror movie lighting <clears throat> of everybody leaning in, including somebody <laughs> from the ceiling. Comes in from the ceiling. <laughs> and I, I mean, at that point, I almost need to go to the hospital. I'm laughing so hard. And then when she starts singing, it's like, where the hell did you find this girl? She should be like playing at like the Grand Ole Opry. She's in, got this incredible voice and just goes berserk. I'm going to take that song and I'm going to open the episode with it. But I think when it comes to great comedic moments in movie history, Lorna Patterson singing that damn song, it's a strong contender for the goat. Yeah. So in addition to Lorna Patterson, uh, the woman who played the the uh, her the actress name is escaping me who who played the hysterical wife who's getting slapped like there are so many <laughs> there are so many of these great roles oh what the fuck was her like, name i can't like bob even, never has uh, a second cup of coffee it's like bob, one of these like weird right, late and, 70s commercials right but that's the fucking the weird thing is that she was the person who was actually in that commercial and and a lot of people for like forget that 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 like that was her job she didn't mention it to the people who you know when they cast her oh lee bryant that was her name lee bryant so, uh, yeah, she actually was in that coffee commercial back in the day, and they were asking her to, like, essentially say the same lines that she said in the commercial, which was just, you know, after it was done, she was like, you know, that, that was actually did that line read in the commercial. Oh, another, but, another all-time great comedy beat, though, was when Leslie Nielsen gives her the second slap. Like, she's been shaken. Yes! Slap. yes! Leslie Nielsen comes in, he slaps her once, and he turns around looks over his shoulder, but just, like, just slaps her one final time. And, <laughs> But there's something about Leslie Nielsen turning back around and just smacking the shit out of her one last time. Because it reminds all these airport movies from the 70s. I covered this with Dave Eves way back when. They're constantly slapping each other. And it's usually stewardesses slapping the shit out of hysterical female passengers. And it's like, all right, well, how many times are you going to smack the fuck out of people in these movies? But I think in the 70s, there was like a slapping epidemic at play. And the fact that they incorporated that into Airplane. I know, obviously, it's a send-up of Zero Hour. But the people who wrote Zero Hour also were some of the writers on the airport movies. So it's all part of the same family tree. Yeah. And look, us growing up watching this movie in the early 80s, I've never seen anybody slap a woman, nor would I recommend doing it. However, I understood the vocabulary of what it meant in a movie. Like, you didn't need to tell me this is what you do to get a... It was a heightened idea of getting a hysterical person out of it. I can understand somebody younger watching this and thinking, oh, Jesus, they're just abusing that woman. They're just slapping the shit out of her and not seeing the comedy. I can't help but see the comedy because it is fully buried in the idiom of the filmmaking. Yeah, and, and it's also like, the fact I just you've got, got the entire, it I saw it. The entire list of passengers in a line with boxing gloves and wrenches and guns. A tire and iron, if, yeah. If you can't get that this is a joke, then your funny bone is underdeveloped. Which is Speaking the reality. Of, some people just, 
Some people don't like some people don't like jokes. Some people don't like kidding around about any subjects, and that's you know more power to them. Airplane is probably not the movie for them because this is probably the least earnest movie ever made in movie history. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because I feel like one of the things I asked I asked around about was the two the jive talking dudes, which I mean was the funniest thing. Shit, man, that hunky muffin messing my old lady got to be running cold upside down his head, you know. Hey, yo, I can dig it. No, he ain't gonna lay no more big rap up on you, man. I say, hey, Sky. Subba say I won't see. Uh-huh. Pray to Jay, I did the same old, same old. Hey, Mac yourself a pro, slick. The gray matter back, lot performers down, not take TCB in, man. Hey, you know what they say. See a broad to get that booty act <laughs> Lay it down and smack them, yak them. Cold got to be. You know? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, that was this. That was the thing. This movie for years, like if if it had gone out of vogue, if people just quoted it, they they thought about the two jive talking dudes, the two African American guys, and the mother from who Leave were transfer, who also speaks Jewish. yes, <laughs> Barbara Billingsley. Right? It's like it, it is. It is the thing of movie legends that you have this. And then I thought, like, okay, is this one of these things that has not survived until today? Is it possible to have this? Because when I rewatched, I'm like. This is fucking funny. Yeah. Also, I, I think it's really it, well because I think is the guys improvise their own jive. They're actually right, right. It's authentic. It's not a couple of like Midwestern Jewish guys doing an approximation of jive. It's the genuine article. Yeah, and like I mean, but you could sort of tell that. I mean, that's why it's been funny all along. Is there's something permanent, not impermanent, about it? And I yeah, I did some research, and the thing is, the AV Club did. I think in 2015 they did a 30. Um, yeah, 35-year anniversary, oral history. It was, you know, a couple of 10,000 words deep. They talked to both these guys. And yeah, you know what? They were equal partners in the creation of it. And ZAZ said to them when they came in to read for the lines, they apologized and said, look, we do, we're three Jews from the Midwest. We did the best we could with Jive. But you like, you see what we're going for. Yeah, and they said, yes, yeah. <laughs> make it your own. And they, they, created a, they created a patois that had its own code. And these two guys came in and blew their socks off and said, like, in the in the read for it, in the read for it, they said this is what we're going to do, and they said, oh, of course, we're just going to move this to the movie in the screen. It's going to work, and they did it in camera, and it was such an important part of the movie. I can understand. I, I even though I have not heard people think about airplane as something that needs to be canceled, I just wonder, like, have they not gotten to it yet? Gotcha. Yeah, I mean, uh, who's um, the SNL alum who's married to Paul Thomas Anderson? I'm totally blanking on her name. Um, Maya Maya Rudolph. She was on. Kimmel or some, one of those big talk shows recently and she was doing the scene of like excuse me stewardess I speak jive and she went to the did, then did the whole thing and she's half black and uh, she was laughing hysterically and crying while recreating the scene this was like a year or so ago I imagine that cancel culture will probably circle around to airplane last because there's not an ounce of hate in this movie there's no hate in its heart whether you're talking about Oh, how would you like this like leaflet of uh, legendary Jewish <laughs> athletes and things like that? Because these guys are making fun of their own culture. Would you like something to read? Do you have anything light? Oh, how about this leaflet? Famous Jewish sports legends. Yes, thank you. And that's the beautiful thing about comedy is that when you have the attitude of a plague on all your houses where you attack everybody equally or send up everybody equally, well, then your, your goal is not to tear people down. You're actually bringing everybody together to laugh at our own expense, which is kind of the essence of comedy. I think a lot of African-American people love that scene. I mean, just based on the few answers I got uh, from Facebook when I, I had asked, I, you know, I, 
I wasn't looking for my black friends to say whether this was funny or not, but I was you know, looking for some sort of consensus to say, look, am I wrong? I don't want to feel guilty about this. I'm, I'm going to continually think it's funny regardless. And then a few African-American friends said, no, th this is a thing. The one guy said th that this is a comment on sort of, it's not a comment about being black. It's sort of a comment about being black in the 70s and 80s and the perceived communication gap. The, the idea that it's about the jive thing and that it was like a created obstacle that people thought they wouldn't have. I mean, I'm, I'm like, I'm doing exactly what you said. I'm, I'm, over explaining the joke. I'm breaking it. I'm killing it. But I think it does exist to this day. I think it, it, it survives just fine in film. I hope they get around to it last. I can understand some people not thinking that it's, it's you know, convenient for the day and age in, in which it's made. But you have to say the same thing about the Moonies and the um, Harry Krishnas. I mean, does it not treat the Harry Krishnas a lot less favorably than the two black guys who are, you know, completely participating and they're just like any other people who are sitting in the passenger seats. Yeah, when they say, like, assume your crash positions, it's the Krishnas who, like, jump up on the chairs. I'm like, ah! Like, you know, they're, we're all in this together, which is what I love. But also when it just comes to, like, having uh, black talent on the screen, having Kareem Abdul-Jabbar in here as a co-pilot who's, like, in disguise, at least until he gets sick, and somehow <laughs> magically he's in his, in his Lakers outfit from the waist down wearing his glasses. That's one of the best beats. It makes zero sense. But somehow just because he's sick, half his uniform has changed as they drag him out of there. And I, I think it's inspired. And when you talk about just, like, funny, like, wordplay, something that's worthy of Groucho Marx, the idea that you have a captain named Clarence Over. So you can have this whole scene about we have Roger, Roger, Roger. We have we have Clarence, Clarence. What's our vector, Victor? Like all these little <laughs> strange play on words, and the way that scene unfolds, I'm like, huh? What? Who? It's it's so <laughs> silly and stupid. But once again, I've, I, the line between genius and stupid is, is very, very vague. And sometimes it's easy to kind of straddle that divide. Now, when you and Brian Sauer talked about um, all the uh, uh, Abbott and Costello movies and how so much of it was based on wordplay in the old school way uh, of doing that thing, this movie, that's the, that is like the one milksop to old school comedy is the wordplay. That, that is a who's on first worthy-esque scene. I mean, and don't tell me they didn't intend it to be that way. That was them taking a swing at Hollywood history, at comedy gold. And, and I mean, they wouldn't have said, oh, we know we're going to do this. But they fucking did it. They came up with a scene that was just as good as who's on first to me. I mean, I can say that was born in 75. What the fuck do I know? But I mean, they nailed it. And and the rest of it is bone dry earnest. But they also delivered that scene completely earnestly, too. And that's part of the reason why it works is because it's based on, you know, it's based on confusion. As the plane is taking off, the footage goes to the runway <laughs> going under the plane. And you hear them. Huh? What? What? You say, huh? What? Huh? <laughs> It's like this fucking is not, amazing. Like, you know, from that point on, whatever happens on this flight, it is, it is not going to go well. And uh, yeah, yeah. but I guess on the set, it must be so complicated or such a weird creative challenge to try and tell your actors not to smile, not to wink, not to do anything that tips your hand. I mean, one of my favorite bits this when I watched it like two nights ago that had never even really made me laugh before is when the lady who ends up hanging herself is listening to Stryker talk about uh, talk about his relationship. And she says, oh, no wonder you're upset. She's lovely and a darling figure. Supple pouting supple breasts, breasts, firm thighs. It's a shame you two don't get along. Dad, what are you doing here? Elaine, I've got to talk to you. You, you shouldn't have come. I don't have time now. Oh, stewardess. Excuse me. 
No wonder you're upset. She's lovely. And a darling figure. Supple, pouting breasts. Firm thighs. It's a shame you two don't get long. Yes, I know. Things used to be different. I, just, I couldn't believe that this charming, sweet, old, wholesome lady was <laughs> basically waxing poetic about how sexually desirable she finds this girl to be. And anyway, it's, I don't know how a director does that, but I think it's something that's lost in a lot of filmmakers. Yeah, there's actually a small moment. Like she starts that conversation up and she looks genial enough. And the thing is, then Robert Hayes picks it up. There's this music that starts playing in the background. They cut to the lady. She puts on her glasses to read and then she does this exasperated look and she takes her glasses off, squinches her breath. He's missed the moment where he doesn't realize she doesn't give a fuck, (laughs) but she's going to be polite. But you talk about like filmmaking. You you the, the the synthesis of the camera angle and the performance that is pure filmmaking. But there's so many small moments where you get a glance that's quiet. That's the thing. That is the '70s version of comedy compared to the Marx Brothers version. And I'm not saying one is better than the other, but this movie excels in the small actorly moments that you would say were more at home in, say, the work of like Norman Jewison or Sidney Lumet, who was going for those small. You watch somebody furrow their brow in an Arthur Hiller movie. And like that was the kind of acting that people were doing new. Like they were injecting this method thing and they were living in the character. It wasn't representational. It was method. They were they were feeling the feelings of the character. And yet, like, I feel like you had that in so many moments in this movie, which is, you know, just based on a, a fucking like 60s, 50, late 50s disaster film which is like those are the broadest tropes imaginable i mean i'm really glad i let that was was that that was dave and, and jessica right talked about all those disaster movies yeah at, we at talked about time. like for whatever reason people forget that in the 70s you had a disaster craze as big as the one you saw in the late 90s once digital like digital animation became a big thing and we talked about well that's what's called swarm what's the one with the bees from like 78 there's one with a bunch of bees that we talked about we talked about like concord which is the I think the fourth airport movie, which I think was, yeah, the fourth airport movie was my favorite. And uh, what else? We talked about Earthquake and Towering Inferno. We talked about a fuckload of them. But those movies, by the time you get to the fourth airport movie, it's almost as funny as Airplane. And I think they would make a divine double feature together. Yeah, and like we don't know, like we may have 2012 or the day after tomorrow, like our version. And there's, I just saw a trailer for a um, Gerard Butler movie called Greenland, which is about a, a comet hitting the Earth or whatever. Yeah, it looks fucking whole, idiotic. Ter- ter- completely terrible, exactly. So we'll get back. We'll do a podcast about that, I'm sure. <laughs> but uh, but I mean, like the idea that the old 70s aeronautical disaster was a trope and people wanted to see it enough that there were like seven or eight like real movies. I mean, and people were fucking flying in mass quantities for the first time in American history, which is why it was like creeping into this untapped, you know, like the way the suddenly uh, Jaws and I mean, Jaws obviously is as, as it's like the the gold standard of disaster movies, but it basically is still like a giant monster movie. It's just a giant monster movie done with a a lot more craft and intelligence and soul, etc. But yeah, it's such a strange thing. We're suddenly in the '70s, where Hollywood became the blockbuster, the blockbuster model. I mean, it's never really reversed since then, but it, it totally changed the into all, all the all the focus of the industry. And obviously, it's only if anything, they've only doubled and tripled down because now it's global cinema as opposed to just blockbusters in America. 
Yeah, I mean, but the, the language of this is specifically American. And oh, yeah, like, I mean, just little things like boy trapped in refrigerator eats his own foot, like all these little bits, like <laughs> doing comedy for a global audience is almost impossible. I think one of the only examples that kind of works is Marvel, but once again, Marvel's doing like a very simple, family-friendly style of comedy where they're like, oh, that's America's ass. Like People can kind of enjoy that, but you're not going to get shit like the show uh, Counterpoint, which obviously would, plays even better today with all like the opinion journalism and opinion shows when he's like, they knew what they were getting into. I say, let them crash. And it's like, what the fuck? But, it, <laughs> but that's like a Glenn Beck show. Like, it's like you could totally see that working today. And so comedy can be very regional and very specific. And I, I don't know. I have no idea if Airplane played very well internationally. I know in Australia had a different name. And they also did a different dubbing of the people speaking jive or a different, maybe a different of subtitle in different countries around the world that got these enormous laughs. So somehow they found different ways to try to make the movie translate, but I can't imagine trying to play this to an international audience. Yeah, well, that I mean, to a certain degree, we already, we won the war as Americans. We were exporting our culture. I mean, look, as a guy living in the Netherlands, I, there's so much of it. We're, you know, we won. It's, it's, you know, this is like Vichy France, for fuck's sake. We're all around the place. American English is everywhere and ubiquitous. But think about the day and age in which it was delivered. Yeah, the one thing I read about Airplane was that... To to do the jive, the two jive dues, like for instance in Germany, what they did was they dubbed them with a very severe country Bavarian accent. Gotcha. And I guess if you were sort of Prussian German, if you were more that Berlin German, the Metro like Hochdeutsch, the sort yeah, of the high Bavarian German. Germans are kind of a breed apart from the rest of Germany, and like everybody hates the Bavarians, that's, and the Bavarians hate everybody else. That's Herzog's. Um, that's Herzog's uh, native dialect, and he. I was just watching the movie he put out this weekend. He put out Family Romance LLC, and he talked about the one thing I would love is if someone would make a movie in my German, my Bavarian dialect. Yeah, and they're I, like Texans. It, they're Bavarians first, Germans second. Right, that's as a seventy-nine-year-old guy. That's what he wants: is that there's this love of his own language and the specific version of his own language. So yeah, the fact that the two jive dudes, it's great to see them like the mirror reflected. It's like that's what the equivalent would be. A little craftiness makes it what they would say is the country folk. I mean, I don't know if that's a good reflection on you know African. Yeah, I think they're people. just trying. They're trying to find a way to make it work and. Like I know with like Annie Hall, one of the big things that was that didn't work was there's a scene where Diane Keaton and Woody Allen are having a drink on her balcony, and as they're speaking and basically code and kind of flirting, they're talking about photography and they're getting these little subtitles of their thoughts down below, and it got really complicated trying to figure out how do you do subtitles of what they're saying and subtitles of what they're thinking at the same time, and yeah, comedy it's fucking weird. It's it's hard to <laughs> it's hard to sell comedy internationally, but sometimes what I've noticed is that it plays in a different way, but still can be deliriously funny. I imagine when I laugh at a really strange movie from South Korea or Japan, I'm laughing for different reasons than the homegrown audience. But comedy is comedy and funny is funny. And it's just if it's making you laugh, it doesn't really matter if you're getting it the way it was intended because the goal is laughs. Like comedy is not that complicated. Yeah. And, I, you know, you mentioned Jaws. And I think it's pertinent to mention that the thing about that Jaws and Airplane have in common and Jaws was 75, Airplane was 80, five years apart from each other. Airplane coming out of the post-Jaws landscape. Jaws was a movie that wasn't expected to be a success. Jaws was a movie that was made, it's well you know, well documented that the production of Jaws was a comedy of errors. It was 
people dancing between raindrops. It was, you know, uh, things on site not working. The creature didn't work. Verna, was it Verna Field? I was going to say Verna Bloom. Verna Bloom's the actress. No, wait. Which, who's the editor? Verna Field was the editor, right? Um, I do not recall. Yeah, I, what I'm saying is like it, the edit, the edit like fixed a lot of sins in the movie. There were so many things that went accidentally but, right with. But it was, a, it was an accidental blockbuster. Yeah, and but it but it it was the accidental blockbuster, but it also redefined. Yeah, v- Verna Field. Yeah, I just Verna checked. Field. Yeah, and <clears throat> Verna Bloom was yeah Verna Bloom was the actress from Animal House. Two, two different Vernas. So. It was an accidental blockbuster, but it also created the blockbuster accidentally. But you had the auteur theory to some degree, and a lot of the adults aren't watching while we're making this movie of a Massachusetts kind of thing. So, you know, it's a magical combination of ingredients that created the modern blockbuster everybody goes back to. And they were just trying to recreate Jaws for years and years and years. And to some degree, they have with some things, but you can't remake Jaws. And the same thing with Airplane. It's like, well... Nobody knew what they were making. The ZAZ had a vision along the way. They were given a couple of pennies to put it together. Not that 3.5 isn't a giant princely sum, but considering what other movies would have cost to make it, it's like Jaws accidentally created the the Titanic blockbuster summer tentpole. And I think that Airplane accidentally created the Ur comedy for what I would consider the best comedies of all time. That so many other comedies mimicked and tried to reproduce. And that became the template until another form of comedy came around in the late 80s, the John Hughes kind of things, which rewrote comedy for a while. But that... That bone dry, you know, beats per minute, rat-a-tat, uh, send up of something else. The satire was the prevailing form of comedy. And also, this like had done it this idea, else. what I, I love it when a comedy is willing to give the best lines to characters that you never see again. And I feel like sometimes that people, oh well, we've got you know Adam Sandler. Maybe we need to give all the funny lines to Adam Sandler, which is the wrong thing to do. You want to spread out your jokes to the entire cast, and that gives you a much deeper bench. And also just having weird little gags that if you're not paying close attention, you'll totally miss. Like at one point, <clears throat> these Siamese twins are given instructions <laughs> to go in different directions, and Lloyd Bridges turns away from them, and we see the Siamese twins kind of struggling and backing up and pulling in different directions, and. <laughs> They not like they don't zoom in. They don't place a huge emphasis on it. But if you're if you're aware of what's all going on in the frame, you are going to crap your pants. Yeah, I mean, the, the opposite of that is the Ethel Merman thing, which is like I've been it, it's if either quoting or just remarking that Ethel Merman shows up. It's like, oh, that's uh, that's Hurwitz, you know, post-traumatic stress. He, yeah. he thinks he's Ethel Merman. And she, she jumps out of the bed and starts singing. You'll be, <laughs> everything's coming up roses. You know, it's like, well, how do you how do you fit that into the rest of the movie? And like, you know, becoming a weaver of fixing all these guys who are playing it completely straight with the, the over the top comedy. I mean, none of that's assured. You have to invent yeah, the looks like I picked the wrong week to quit, amphetam- quit amphetamines. I mean, that comes <laughs> straight out of zero hour. I think it's <clears throat> this is something that Trey Parker and Matt Stone have done a million times over. Is they take something like a Jerry Bruckheimer film and then they turn it into Team America where you've got that Jerry Bruckheimer, Michael Bay flavor, but you've also got dolls shitting on each other and having 69s and all this crazy stuff. And I think probably in the 21st century, those two guys are the only people who really have been like the spiritual kind of inheritors of this brand of comedy where you take something serious, sprinkle the comedic steroids throughout, and you've got something that's totally different and new. But it's a sad thing where no one's really taken up that baton and run with it because sadly right now when it comes to comedy, like stand-up comedy is so good right now. So many comedic YouTube channels or comedic podcasts. Comedy is all over the place. 
and in the world of movies, it's like what's that stupid um, um, uh, Dave Bautista comedy just came out where he's like a spy. Oh, Stuber, Stuber. Well, you got that, but you also had the other one with like the little girl, and it's like it's like the comedy oh, has Jesus. zero balls right now, zero appetite for risk, zero appetite for controversy, and if you're not excited about stirring up controversy, then you're not a comedic director, not a comedic writer. Like, I can't remember which podcast I was listening to, but Joe Rogan was interviewing a comedian, and someone brought up the idea that this is the worst time ever for comedy, and they said, no, you're wrong. This is the best time for comedy. At a time where so many people are sensitive and so many people are getting outraged about things, that's the world's greatest opportunity for comedy. And my hope is that some writers and filmmakers are going to realize that and get that and realize, all right, you just got to embrace the comedy. Like, they're not going to put you in jail. Like, they might ban you or block you or whatever, but, like, make your fucking comedy. Make people laugh. Like, somebody, you will find your audience if you're willing to take a few risks. At least that's my little, yeah. my little rant on the topic. Well, my, yeah, no, I totally agree. And you brought it up, I, I think it, I, I, it was the Gidget Show or whatever you talked, or you've mentioned a couple of times about how comedy is a real sallow point right now. We're, the studios themselves are backing away from comedy. They're not treating comedy with the reverence it deserves. In fact, they've turned <clears throat> they've turned comedy into a four quadrant thing. And I think my heart sunk. And I remember the moment I was watching Pineapple Express, thinking this is a David Gordon Green movie. It's got Seth Rogen in it. It's got Franco. It's got um, Danny McBride. It's got you know all these people who at that point I've enjoyed the smaller bits. And I'm like, oh, this is a road movie. This is an action movie. This has shotguns and a giant set piece in a warehouse at the end with Rosie Perez. This is not a comedy. And it's like, uh, wh- wh- wait a second. You guys flipped the, s- the script on me because it's like I signed up for a comedy. That's what this was supposed to be. And then you have after that, you have like Your Highness and all these other movies that I think are the dark spot the, of, the, of comedy that we're still in right now where we have action films. And I'm like, I know a lot of people really love that. What is it called? The Heat, the one with McCarthy and yeah, Sandy yeah, Bullock. Yeah. I did not did not like The Heat and nor did I like uh, Spy, the one with Melissa McCarthy, where she was in Europe with the rest of that. Yeah, stay them right. It's like those were action movies with jokes punched up after. Yep. They had a guy on set who was, who was, and it's like, that's not a comedy. That's an action movie that you're making into a four quadrant film. That's bullshit. Those are Fast and Furious movies. Those aren't comedy. I'm, I'm glad if you like them. I don't think they're funny. And so, um, yeah, like Armando Iannucci still does comedy, and he's one, but he's one of the few. Yeah. Like you, you need to look at other sources of comedy. And, I would I would almost plus what the guy in the Rogan show was saying and that it is a golden age for comedy because you can find niche comedy in smaller places. You can almost find the comedy designed exactly for you. The thing is, it's not in the cinema right now. I, the funniest movie this year... And maybe year, it'll never go back there because the cinema is changing. Its role in entertainment is changing. Yes. Will yes. we ever go back to cinema being like the main artery of pop culture the way it was in the 80s and 90s? Maybe not. Like... When it comes, like some people who like live all day on social media with that kind of like constant dopamine fix, they probably think movies are boring as shit. Like, oh, I'm, I'm not pissed the entire time. Like, why am I going to watch a movie when I can hang out on Instagram and just scream and rage all day? Like, some people that's right. their preferred form of entertainment. And so perhaps the days of movies' relevance as the main artery of pop culture might not ever come again. But I do think there's an opportunity for comedy on a platform like Netflix, where you can yeah. Netflix. Yeah. They don't have an ideology. They want numbers. They don't care what the ideology yeah. of the filmmaker is. They 
they, they, they play around with filmmakers of so many different conflicting points of view and agenda, but it's what makes it so much fun because whether, no matter what kind of crazy you subscribe to, you can find your entertainment on yeah. Netflix. Yeah. And I love the fact that yeah. they're just throwing everything at the wall and seeing what, what sticks. And I think there's a giant opportunity for comedy shows on Netflix. Studio Timidity is killing the comedy because they will only affix the comedy as one-liners that are punched up in Marvel movies, which are great. I think they're, I think they're great. You're not going to hear a bigger booster of Marvel movies than, than me. But the idea that I think they're missing an opportunity to do the same thing with comedies that they're doing with action movies, thinking that they could be four-quadrant movies. If you make a funny enough movie, like we all watched something about Mary cleaned up. There was no sentimental anything about something without Mary. And that was 98. That was a long time ago. Yeah. And like you could, you could have that you again. Shit very don't easily. Stick? I mean, yeah, I, it's, I, I, that movie was a much deserved blockbuster. You got, the, you got the Franks and it earned the Franks above the beans. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's like, but, but like the myopia that you can't remember that something like that was so huge. And that's what made the Farrelly's, it, it dragged the Farrelly's out of the small little thing that they were in. It made them enormous world beaters. And like they briefly occupied the stage in a huge space. And I, I, I will give Netflix a lot of credit because it's like one of the one of the funniest series I saw in the last few years was American Vandal. They did two seasons, then they cut it off of the knees. It was fucking funny, and it was a lot like this. It was a lot like Zucker Abraham Zucker, and that it was dry as a bone. It was it it was the subtle smirky humor. It, it felt a lot more like AV Club. It was like an onion type thing, but it was so well done, and that it was a takeoff on the true crime, and it got all the same beats of a Discovery Channel thing, of an A and E type thing, of a Court TV type show, and and like that was brilliant, but. And I know that a lot of the people who were supposed to find it, they found it. I guess there just wasn't enough of them to make Netflix happy when they could put some other weird thing like 13 Reasons Why. I mean, yes, they are or hitting Tiger a numbers Tiger King, game. which I know you were not a fan of. And it was not a comedy, but I will admit I laughed probably for evil reasons, but I laughed constantly throughout that show. But, yeah. but before we wrap up on Airplane, I did want to at least give a few shout outs to some of the other comedies by this comedy team because while I don't think they ever reclaimed the heights of Airplane, they came really close many times over. So when it comes to this comedy trio, what are your favorites when it comes to things like, you know, Top Secret or Naked Gun, so on and so forth? Top Secret's okay. I don't love it as much. I It took me a long time. I don't think I saw Top Secret until about 2000, 2001. I just, somehow, I, even though it was on complete loop, I hadn't seen it. It's funny. I mean, it's the same ingredient, and it's, a, it's kind of the same. It's a lot of the same formula. I don't think that... I mean, Val Kilmer was ready to do the job, but I don't think it was as good a product constructed around him. And I was already familiar with Val Kilmer from, like... He, he did... Um, Real Genius, I think in 85, he was almost doing a more soft comedy thing. He didn't take himself so seriously, even though he did Top Gun, which is about as dry as you can get. So Top Secret wasn't my favorite, but Naked Gun. Naked Gun I saw in the theaters, and I had seen Airplane a bunch of times. Naked Gun is a very different kind of movie than Airplane. I mean, topically, it's kind of uh, different, even if it's the same form as airplane it used the los angeles it used the cop show it used dragnet in that way and i hadn't seen a single minute of the of the tv show before i saw the movie but i didn't need to and it, it's that movie that got me into leslie nielsen it's that movie that got me into george kennedy uh, george kennedy in that is is so indispensable and I didn't know George Kennedy had played somebody dry as a bone roll through the 70s. I hadn't seen the Iger Sanction 
where George Kennedy is at, at like his most crabby, his most cantankerous. And to think that he was able to go from this to that to this to that is is kind of insane. So, I mean, Naked Gun, I, I feel like most of the listeners have seen Naked Gun. If you haven't, it is, I mean, quite simply just so funny. Every single bit of it is nearly as funny as Airplane. Um, and if, if you're with that, if you if you've watched one and haven't seen the other, Go remedy that because it's just as fun. I haven't seen Hot Shots, or at least I don't remember seeing Hot Shots. I saw some of the Naked Gun, you know, sequels. Was it 33 and a third? Those were all diminishing properties. I haven't seen Mafia. I mean, they did that with Lloyd Bridges. They brought him back and it was a Godfather sort of swipe. Um, I think I was less interested because in I saw that the product had kind of degraded. A, a little bit where comedy had switched to something in the 90s by that point that um, that looked creaky and it looked like it was trying really hard. And by the time they took over the scary movies from Keenan Ivory Wayans, it's like by the time you get to Scary Movie 4, I think it was like they had done a bunch of those. It's like, oh, man, I don't need to see any more of this. This just looks like you guys haven't been able to age gracefully. Like the 90s just destroyed this. But I mean, what else do you expect? They, they, it was such a phenom in the early 80s that I assume you get stuck in doing this kind of thing and people just assume that this is your job and you have one slight little lane that you can do and so they just get crunched up. So, I mean, they for the three of them, other than, what was it, Jerry Zucker was the guy who had rolled on to... See, this was fucked up, right? Like, you, you read that this guy did... Um, what did he do? He did Ghost. And like he did Ghost Ruthless yeah, and Pe- First Night. <laughs> yeah, well, when it comes to their other flicks, yeah, I mean, you mentioned how he did like Ghost and First Night. He obviously very clearly, uh, Jerry Zucker was able to make that pivot. And that's always the thing about comedy. I think it's really hard to stay funny once you're rich and comfortable. I think there's something about a little bit of poverty goes a long way towards making people a little more like nasty or cynical. And you look at stand up, like it's death. For a lot, for not not all, but for a lot of people, when they become really successful, like Larry David, obviously still funny as hell. Jerry Seinfeld still funny as hell. Dave Chappelle probably as funnier now than he's ever been, but they're the exceptions as opposed to the rule. And I think with filmmakers, writers, and directors, once you've made tons of fucking money, it's like when you're a, a, like a boxer or an MMA fighter. What's your motivation or incentive? Like poverty is a great incentivizer, but once you're incredibly wealthy, it's like do I really want to get into the ring and get my fucking teeth knocked out? And so I think the same thing happens with a lot of comedy writers where it's, it's hard to stay focused. It's hard for it to remain the most important thing in your life. And so probably they became a victim of their own success because you do see the diminishing returns over time. But I agree. Naked Gun, still funny as hell. Is it as good as an airplane? No, but it's still one of the funniest movies that I've ever seen. And it gave me hours upon hours of endless joy as a kid on TV. And uh, I mean, it, it just like little stupid things like getting in the condoms before they get, before they make it like, Oh, I believe in safe sex. Like there's just so many great bits <laughs> scattered throughout. And I think once again, Leslie Nielsen delivering every single line with total sincerity is what makes that comedy soar. Well, I'm not a big fan of it, but like to, to go back and to try to bring people back to 1990 when ghost came out, like Ghost was a world beater. Ghost was it was a phenomenon. The tight, it was the Titanic of its age, and I don't think oh, I realized until maybe my. yeah, then that song it came back I, in a big way. <laughs> I don't think I realized until about five years ago that it was the same guy as did Ghost, as did Airplane, and 
to to mix in the completely tonal difference that the guy could switch one hat for the other and create the the you know like that changed the decade from the 80s to the 90s and it and it it took Demi Moore from one star power to another and it made Patrick Swayze a romantic lead which before he was kickboxing people you know, no, so it, was, so it, was, it was a year after. Uh, it was a year after Roadhouse, which was one of our our all time great wrong real episodes. But yeah, I I would argue that he was already a romantic lead from Dirty Dancing and uh, Roadhouse. But he obviously True shifted enough. gears into more. It was, I mean, Ghost was one of those weird things where it's a supernatural movie, but it still somehow plays like a mainstream tragedy and romance. I'm with you. Ghost is not my go-to. It's not my favorite cup of tea. But there's no denying that it was a blockbuster of ep- epic proportions that really captured yeah. the moment in Hollywood. I mean, Woody, uh, Woody, Whoopi Goldberg won an Oscar for that. She won the Best Supporting Actor from that. It was a fucking Oscar-winning movie. Yeah. And, it, like, I, I think back to the 90s nostalgia, the naughty 90s that we did, where to, to try to help people remember a moment that is so alien to ours because it's like I'm trying to think of it like Ghost is just a thing that shows up in a montage at the Oscars no one talks about it it's it's part of the firmament it's hands pressed into the concrete outside of Grauman's theater it's not a living breathing thing because we moved on past it but to remember what it was like to be we were 15 I was 15 that year you were 14 that year again for a guy to hit you know, pay dirt twice to make both Airplane and Ghost, which were both phenomena in different respects. That's like to own two different genres of film. You know, and and it's it's almost a shame. I mean, this is one of the three. This is not, this is, you know, this is one Zucker. This is Jerry, not David and Jim Abrams. So it wasn't the three guys coming together. But that's, that is an amazing second act. He just didn't get to kind of keep going beyond that. He I don't think he was able to, to write his own future. He had, I mean... I can't complain because those are two enormous things. Like you, he changed the business twice. You can just, you know, you can die the next day and you're just fine. However, it's like, imagine if you were the kind of guy that had the enough juice in your tank to keep rolling for decades and decades and decades. Which is um, very rare. Like you look at Scorsese, who's nearly 80 and he's still got the hunger and he's still making giant movies with Netflix. It's very rare to have that level of appetite where I think a lot of people, they reach a certain point where like, all right, well, I've got my 15 minutes and now I'm going to play golf or I'm going to spend time with my kids or I'm going to eat myself to death or whatever the case might be. It's very few, pe- <laughs> very few people who have that hunger and drive to keep going where they just fall in love with the process and just enjoy. I mean, look, Clint Eastwood is 90 years old and he's still making movies. Like when I'm 90, if I'm like, I will be sitting in a chair with a diaper with like drooling on a bib, like lucky if I'm still alive, Clint's making movies. Like it's that, that is or Paul Verhoeven or whatever the case might be. But that, that it's a very, very rare thing where if you've had a great success to want to keep going. So obviously, but Jerry Zucker, he felt he had that itch to at least try to reinvent himself one time. But even if he'd never made ghost, their comedy legacy is yeah. ironclad. It's, you can't fuck with it. Top secret has great bits. Fucking Hot Shots 1 and 2 both have great bits. I, there are not a lot of directors who have had that much success in comedy. You, I mean, Woody Allen, Mel Brooks, uh, uh, obviously. I mean, uh, Apatow. i got to give Apatow credit. You know? Yeah, I mean, Apatow, I guess I love Freaks and Geeks. I loved Undeclared. I really enjoyed 40-Year-Old Version. Problem was once he made Knocked Up and critics started singing his praises. I think he fell in love with great reviews in the New York Times, and he started leaning in towards things like This is 40 and things like that. And it's like, yeah, yeah like funny people. Funny people. 
he started taking himself way too seriously, which is death for comedy. Like, look at Rodney Dangerfield. I get no respect. Like, that was the essence of his comedy. You, the moment you take yourself seriously, the comedy's over. Yeah, I mean, uh, I was thinking the Farrelly Brothers, too, which I didn't love the Farrelly Brothers. I almost think of the Farrelly Brothers as the inheritors of ZAZ. Yeah, but Dumb and Dumber they, was funny as fucking shit. I mean, oh, no, it was. And, and uh, Kingpins. Kingpins, to me, might have been their funny. Their funniest movie, I think, was Kingpins. I mean, you start off with the original. Like, they... they you know, you had a team of guys. They came out of nowhere. They were Providence boys. They had their own style of doing things. They didn't really kowtow. They made the movies they wanted to make. And I give them all the credit in the world in that they, they wrote their own ticket for a while. Like, they proved that whatever that Providence sensibility is, they could get guys it like Alec Baldwin. Yeah, yeah it translated there. And, and Ben Stiller would come in and understand their language. And, you know, they were able to work with guys like Jim Carrey, so on and so forth. You know, you don't... It, 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 I guess it's an outsider thing as much as, you know, just two middle class dudes from an American suburb is an outsider thing. But, you know, like you don't get to, you know, you don't get to punch your own ticket. You do have to like play the studio game. So there are ver- there are many fewer examples of that idea of guys coming out, bringing a sensibility from the old days or from some, some smaller scene that's more raw. Uh, and ZAZ did that. And I mean, I like I said at the top of the show, I will always think of Airplane to me as the Ur comedy. And I am 45. And this came out when I was five years old. And I've been watching it since I was probably seven or eight years old. Think about and it. Maybe in the entire history of cinema, movies have been around since 1895. That is one third of the entire history of movies ago. Like, that's incredible that <laughs> one third of the entire lifespan of the medium of film itself has taken place since this movie came out. And multiplicatively, the amount of movies that have come out since this came out, you know, it's like the amount of films that are swallowed up in that number. It's like they always say there's more people alive today than have ever died in the history of mankind that have ever been planted in the earth or turned to ash. And the same thing is true where it's just become easy and easier to make films. And, you know, these these guys to me were pioneers. They they created a language. They the sensibility is a sensibility that I appreciate in my life where I look at comedy because they um, bent my focus towards seeing it the way that they made it. And imagine, I, I'm just going to throw this out. Imagine that they, they were going to issue, they were going to throw the role of Dr. Rumack to Christopher Lee. And they did. Christopher Lee turned them down. Yep, absolutely. Christ, Christ, Big Christ, mistake. Christ, Christopher Lee said, oh, I should I should have done that. That seems like a big mistake. I should have done that. You know, and it's like, well, what Christopher Lee's career would have been totally different and we would have been Gremlins having a different too. conversation. Gremlins 2 is a, a, a weird movie and he plays that one straight. It's not as funny as Airplane, but it's got its uh, very vocal defenders. But I, I can imagine, like, if you're Christopher Lee and you've got all these wonderful movies to your name and you're looking at the script and you're seeing things like somebody in the whacking material section of like a newsstand reading modern sperm. Like, <laughs> what, what the fuck is this? <laughs> like, I'm not going to sign up for this fucking movie. Modern sperm. These guys are sick. Like, <laughs> yeah, I don't think there's any way Christopher Lee could have pulled it off, but I mean, it would have been interesting and we would have, I okay, we'd be having a different conversation, but that's, you know, this is the thing we get to live in this beautiful world where Leslie Nielsen had a completely different third act for his career. And all these guys made this indelible piece of art. And it, it was very different from Animal House. It was very different from. I think it's way places. better than Animal House. Animal House, I know it's 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 you know it's a it's an it's one of the like I guess foundational building blocks of comedy in the in, during my life. But of all of John Landis's comedies, like Animal House for me, has got like thirty funny minutes and like a lot of stupid shit with like a parade at the end. It has zero yeah. laughs of any kind. I'll take. I watched Trading Places this past weekend with my entire family for my dad's seventieth birthday. My teenage brothers had never seen it, 
And they're like, whoa, like they couldn't believe the shit that, that he was doing and what he was saying. So when it comes to comedy and John Landis, give me Spies Like Us, give me Three Amigos, give, give me any of this yeah. movie. I, but I, you know, I, I will defend Animal House. I, I hate it when people do like hot takes. Like all oh, these, the top 10 reasons why Animal House is problematic. It's like, all right, fine, Captain Obvious. Like you're writing like something that you're going to get like slapped on the back with every single person online. But except for people who actually like comedies. But I, I'm, so it's a weird thing where in college, I used to always kind of trash Animal House because all my friends praised it too highly because we were all in fraternities. I was like, it's not that funny. It's got its bits, but like the other better comedies. <laughs> but now that it's coming under attack from cancel culture, I'm finding myself in a position of having to defend a comedy that I never really liked that much in the first place, which is my weird thing on a re- weird relationship with Animal House. But before I let you go, real quick, what are we going to do for our naughty 90s nostalgia part two? Because I that was that's one of the top five most popular wrong reel episodes ever. I'd love to do a sequel because this is this is showbiz and sequels are are, are a good thing if you if you do them right. But we got we, we got to start brainstorming about a possible part two for that that blockbuster episode of ours. Well, I mean, we covered good movies that were also prurient, and there's no shortage of those. I think if you look towards the end of the 90s. Like you have this weird synthesis of the the post Tarantino moment, you get the sort of post Kevin Smith thing, um, the post John Favreau, like that ninety four to ninety six, the middle of the decade is where the mood changes to a different form of like Harvey and Bob thing. Yeah, they take over showbiz, or at least they take over yeah, they, the indie scene. The whole the whole the second half of the nineties was completely utterly. I mean, they just left this giant wake behind them between Miramax and Dimension. Those two brands changed the movie business forever. Yeah, so to to find the same type of, um, it's different to find the same pervy moment. I mean, I, I they're out there. I mean, King of New I, York, King of New York's never been covered on the podcast in depth, and that's 1990, so it qualifies as a naughty 90s movie. So yeah. there, there are some ones out there like that that I think are uh, strong contenders for a naughty 90s nostalgia episode. I mean, you know, if you're asking, I would say Color of Night, James, if you're interested in, uh, you know, that kind of thing. Is that technically, is that 1990? Because I, I love Color of Night. That's got some really... That I think Color... Po- that scene well, in the that pool was like, is like... Hot was like oh, it's 94. Holy 94, shit, fuck yeah, yeah, Color of Night. Bring it on, dude. <laughs> <laughs> if we if we just backtrack through Jane March's career uh, and and other movies like that, you will find a lot of uh, high class nudie movies that were you know big the budget from nineteen ninety two. That's like got even more yeah. nude scenes in Color of Night, but Color mm-hmm. of Night with Bruce Wilson. All yeah, I mean that that movie is uh, celluloid Viagra. Absolutely. All right, so we'll start brainstorming. <laughs> I'm tired of talking about the eighties. I'm ready to talk about the nineties. So yeah, bring, yeah, bring yeah. on the naughty nineties nostalgia. As Carl Weather said in uh, Arrested Development, you got a stew going, baby. You got a stew going, <laughs> exactly. I can't think of a better note to end on than that. So, real quick before we wrap up, in case people fast forwarded it through this part of the beginning of the episode, where can people find your YouTube channel? Where can people find your podcast? Where can people find your social media? All those good things. So I'm on uh, Twitter at uh, at William Scurry, uh, gammering my mouth off all day, doing side by sides in the tradition of Marcus Pin. I am on uh, uh, YouTube at youtube.com slash amcaesar. That's where you'll find my uh, video series, American Caesar Salad. Ten episodes are out. The next ten are coming forthwith as soon as I can get through them. And my podcast is um, uh, I Don't Get It, which is at Noah and Bill Show on Twitter. And we are 
two middle-aged dudes who talk about pop culture trends. And I mean, we're not just saying like, I don't get things. It's it's literally, it's a good faith look at things because we want to like stuff. We want to enjoy new ideas. So it's, I think people get turned off by the title and I we understand, we own that, it's fine. We came up with a fucked up title, but the whole thing is that we are, you know, we're just like trying to give things a shot. Yeah, that takes us out, huh? That's Absolutely. It. Well, we hope y'all have enjoyed this episode. Definitely hunt us down on Twitter at Colbrex or at WrongReal or Facebook or whatever. If you want some video content, you can find my YouTube channel, Geeking with James Hancock. And please remember to leave a rating and review for the podcast. That's incredibly helpful because there are a lot of pricks out there who've left me some bad reviews because they don't appreciate my caveman sensibility. So i got to balance out those reviews with some positives from, from the people who actually like the show. At any rate, we can't thank enough for listening. We greatly appreciate it. But more importantly, as always, onwards and upwards. Ain't like it used to be, but uh, it'll do. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? You just put your lips together and blow. <laughs>